0: to Gibraltar stories throughout March as we've recently celebrated International Women's Day I decided to focus on some of Gibraltar's inspiring women So far we've heard from the worlds of business and music today it's the turn of someone who's entertained Gibraltar through theater broadcasting and print journalism. This week, I'm thrilled to be able to share the story of someone whom I admire a great deal. A person who loves telling people's stories as much, if not more, than I do. I feel extremely honoured that she agreed to tell me hers. This episode is dedicated to Alice Mascarenhas.
1: I'm a firm believer that wherever you look, any cubbyhole, any, you know, in the corner, any corner, behind wherever you want. You will find a story. There's always a story. Because, essentially, you are telling stories about people. Whether it's people from today or people from the past, you're still telling stories about people. So you're always going to have something to say. Because there's many people. And what I found through my um, Saturday columns, Alice's Table... Is it sometimes, and I guess I knew this, but maybe it's been reinforced in a sense. Um, you you think you know a person, but you don't really. You know, when you start to talk to a person, you think, wow, you did that? God, you were involved with that? Oh, I didn't know you were there. And and, and I, lo- I love, you know, finding out all those, not quite secrets, but, you know, things that were there to be discovered, really.
0: Alice once harboured the dream of becoming a marine biologist, but life took her down a different path and led her into radio. She's presented the Centre Stage Show on Radio Gibraltar for the past 22 years and also has a weekly column, Alice's Table, in the Gibraltar Chronicle and has published two books in the last year as well. We got together for coffee and had great fun chatting about her life, her love of theatre, her career and some of the fascinating people she's interviewed over the years. She began by taking me back to her
1: childhood growing up here in Gibraltar. It was a close frontier era. Uh, I was eight years old when the frontier closed. So I don't really remember the, the the days before the closure of, of, of the frontier. So I lived in a very safe place. I, I, we did a lot of things locally. We would go on up uh, the rock on, on a Sunday for a Sunday picnic. We would go to the beach. Uh, the beaches were absolutely full in, the, in those days, in the summer months. And we would start going to the beach very early and carry on till, till September. It was a very happy childhood. I grew up with uh, parents who were very culturally driven so i was into music and um, a lot of reading and of course my dad was was a journalist he was a broadcaster and he was in the, in the early 70s he became the head of the gbc of television and and radio so i grew up in that atmosphere i grew up in the old wellington front days when it was a, a real family of, of people, you know, and I would go down and we would wait for my dad and uh, often after Newswatch, which was Deadline then and a number of other names that it had over, over the years, uh, we would wait for him to finish with the guests that had been on that night. Um, I have a very clear memory of the Three Kings coming out of the, the, <laughs> the studio at GBC and down at, at, at Wellington Front and that was a bit scary for me. I was still a very, very, very a kid, really. I was still a kid. So, and I also remember going to uh, waiting for my dad and being and sitting in the old grey uh, armchair that was down at um, Wellington Front and in front you had the television projectors, the film projectors, uh, which sometimes got stuck or there was a hair in them, so people had to rush off to try and get them off, you know. Um, I would watch some of that. I was very fortunate because I, uh, of the films that came in, uh, you had to actually view before they went on air. So I saw Star Trek before anybody else. I saw Batman and Robin before, before anybody else, you know, that kind of stuff that was around then. And I learned to play the guitar. My first chords were actually in the old Wellington Front Studios with Susan Clifton Tucker. She taught me my first chords on the guitar on that grey armchair. So I have very fond memories of Wellington Front.
0: And of course, you, you've said this was the closed frontier years and GBC had such a pivotal role in keeping the community together, spreading news, and also spreading the situation that was going on here, sharing that information across the border, of which your dad was an incredibly important.
1: That was really pre-1969. I mean, it, it lasted a little bit, little bit more after 69, but the Palabras del Viento, which is probably what you're referring to, began in 1964-65. So it was really the run-up to the closure... Um, but remember that in those da- by that time, 1966, movement into Spain was more difficult. So my parents would have stopped going quite a few years before. Uh, for my dad, it was it was must have been quite an issue, I would imagine, because he was a great fan of the bullfights so he never got the chance to to go to a bullfight after 66, 67. Um, I don't think he was persona non grata in Spain at that time, so I don't think he would have gone over. I don't remember, actually. I I have... um, My mind has almost kind of blocked those pre-closure frontier days, you know? Um, But yes, GBC had a huge role to play. Um, I very vividly remember the queues at outside Radio Gibraltar when people used to go to take, you know, to, to, to get dedications to send those messages to La Linea and, and, and beyond because there was no communication once the frontier closes, you know. And, and that is one of my earliest recollections, seeing this queue of people outside Radio Gibraltar at Wellington Front. Of course, TV was at one end and radio was at the other then. And there's dedications being taken down, you know, messages across to to their families in Spain. I also remember going to the frontier where where people were showing their babies across the France, you know, so that people on the other side could see the newborn babies or they were shouting messages across. We didn't have family in Spain, so for us it was just a question of going and look and looking. I assume that we went because my dad was in the media, so he was you know who was gathering information and 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 so on um but in the 1970s certainly television and radio had a big part to play as well because we were an enclosed community and they introduced a lot of television programs you know a lot of live Programs, radio, of course, was was just slightly different to what it is today, but it had important programs like the Discos dedicados, which are the, were the ones that used to send the messages, and it just kept the spirit of Gibraltar going. Really, you know, I, I, I think they, it was the pioneering days of radio and television. Really, radio just started in '58, and GBC started in '64, '65. So it was really the pioneering days, and I think they did a good job, as they learnt their job, as they, as they, they went along, you know? Well, that's it, because you were, you were
0: completely isolated here. It was a one-way conversation of these, these dedications mm. that were going out from families. But also, something I find quite amazing is the fact that Gibraltar is such a small community, and yet... There was this ability to unite and, and provide these services for the wider community mm. that other places in the world wouldn't have that were, you know, double, treble, four times the size. Yeah. Well, we had
1: to get on with it, really. You you had to make the most of what you had, you know. And during that period, we had a lot of things going on in the schools. Um, plays were by, by Group 70 then, the Group 56 and... Um, Saint Joseph's Middle had then amalgamated and become, become Group Seventy, and they presented a, a lot of plays during that time. But there were many others as well. The drama festival was always packed. Uh, there were three, four plays a night sometimes, you know. And it doesn't happen today. Uh, but then again, that's how it was. We 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 th- looked for our own entertainment really, and. I I've been asked the question many times, you know, what what was it like to live here? I said, well, actually, it was great to live in, in during those close frontier years. All right, so I didn't actually go out and see farm animals till I was much, until <laughs> I was in my teens, but that didn't matter really, you know. Um, I think it was it was a great family environment, and we would go. With our friends to the beach, and like you do today, but it's slightly different because you had to be there, you couldn't go anywhere else, you know. And then there was the skelectrics where you actually went round and round and round and round the rock all the time. Um, I, I think it was a great way to grow up, to be honest with you.
0: I can imagine that. I've heard that from, from other people who were of a similar age yeah. to you at the time and, and that it was an incredibly safe place where you had a huge amount of freedom that you probably wouldn't
1: have yeah. had. I think we all have very fond memories because, precisely because of that. Because it was a safe environment, because you could move around easily. Um, uh, your, fa- your parents didn't fear anything. You know, I mean, I, I, y- if you did anything and you were out, um, you know, naughty or whatever, uh, your parents would get to know, know it if by the time you go home, you I know, that imagine. sort of thing. <laughs> because there was that network of... Um, of It was like a safety net almost, really. And it was because people looked out for each other in a, in a very big way. I'm not sure whether that happens completely today. Um, community life has changed a lot, really. But it was, a, it was a great way to live. Um, I, I, don't, I didn't lack anything growing up. I certainly didn't lack anything growing up. I mean, look, what, what could I have lacked? I was always into music. So I can remember the first time we went to England was 1973. And I can remember telling my parents, we are not actually, we're not going to leave the hotel. Uh, in fact, we were saying with friends at the time, we're not going to leave on Thursday. We have to be uh, in the in the house at 7 o'clock. Ask, yourselves, ask yourself why. You might work it out. Would it be the charts? It was Top of the Pops. Oh. I'd never <laughs> seen Top of the Pops. So if I was in England, I was going to see Top of the Pops. That's Absolutely. what I wanted to see. Of course, nowadays it's different. You switch on the telly and you've got every single channel under the sun. Yes. Back then, our choices were Gibral- the GBC, and Spanish channels, and even then the Spanish channels was only the first channel and possibly the second channel a little bit later on you didn't have the choice that you you had today, so you would watch a lot of the Spanish channels as well you know a lot of the English films I first saw with the Spanish translation so sub subconsciously Spanish was being dr- put into you if you like in in a sense um and I think it's a great shame, we're deviating a bit, but I think it's a great shame that a lot of the youngsters today don't really speak Spanish. I mean, I always spoke in English at home, even though my parents spoke Spanish as well. But I understand that through everything that was going on around me, I was taking in Spanish. Mm-hmm. But nowadays, unfortunately, kids just seem to take in Disney English.
0: Yes, yes.
1: So that, you know, that that, that was important as well, because we were able to carry on... Talking Janito, I think it's very important that we don't lose that, that that element of our culture.
0: Absolutely, yes. Well, it marks Gibraltarians out as, as different. Yeah,
1: yeah, it? yeah. It certainly does. Um, my I, I can we I, my my family spoke English, but of course my grandparents also spoke Spanish and and so on. You know, they did speak English, um, but it, it was just so important. I didn't actually start to. To talk a lot more Spanish till I I started work, and go and went into in well actually probably a little bit before then when I was in comprehensive, um, and I and I by that stage I'd mixed with a lot more people. Um, I came from Loreto convent so when I went into the comprehensive system uh, all the schools came came together and that was an eye opener as well. Uh, so you, and I made a lot of other friends who were not part of that early childhood really. Mm.
0: Now, I remember you telling me that uh, your plan at that point was to become a marine biologist.
1: Yeah, I've always been very interested in, I mean, because I opposed music at one end and marine biology at the other end. I was always fascinated by things under the sea, really. Uh, But it never happened, because at at the age of 16, um, I I moved on and I applied for a job at radio. Sadly, my dad had died um, a couple of years before, and... I had to go out to work, really. My mum didn't want me to, but it happened. I applied, and I was fortunate enough to get the, the job at radio. And why radio? Well, because, possibly because I grew up at radio, and I grew up in television, and that's the only thing I knew. I mean, I, you know, they say you don't become your parents, but somehow most people tend up, tend up doing what their parents did. Mm. You know that's. Well, if it's what you're exposed to throughout <laughs> yeah, your childhood, exactly. it, it seems like a, a oh, yeah. natural progression, really. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I went into radio, and um, eventually I went into television. Um, I, I did radio and television at the time. Uh, then when we moved, we were in Wellington Front in those days, so it was it was an, a, an area, a place that I knew very well, inside out. And in the, the with with the equipment back then was all homemade. Um, it was great, it worked, you know, I I had to, we, we used to work with the old, the old Ferro 8s, the old Ferrograph machine, the, which were difficult to, to, to handle. Um, I can remember having to tune in to the BBC World Service, the Spanish service, at uh, 10.15 at night. And uh, it was always fun because uh, there was a German station very close to... The BBC Spanish service, and sometimes you, there, there was a signal, which which made them different, but they were very much the same. So sometimes when you actually went on and put it on, it ended up being the German. Um, so that was a panic because you had to, you know, quickly go through the, uh, the the receiver and and try and get try and get the BBC. So that was that was fun, and we worked through. I we we had. Um, I worked the split shift, which meant that I did night shift and early shift at the weekend mm. and on on Saturday, I would go in at uh, for eight o'clock in the morning. We were opened up at 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 eight that's before we opened up at seven when we went up to South barrack and we used to have a shift where you did the mid-morning show, well, the, the breakfast show you then did something on the mid-morning show, you did the children's program you'd a variety of, of 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 things then you left at one. No, you left at 2. And then you came back for 5 until 7 or 8. And then the next morning it was exactly the same. And then during the week you would do the, the night shift, which you had a split shift on on the, on the Wednesday as well. But then on well, by the Monday, Tuesday, or whichever shift you were on, you would work from 5.45 to midnight. Goodness, I, hadn't, I haven't spoken about that in a while. <laughs> So yeah, it was, so
0: you were working round the clock.
1: You had your a couple of days off in the middle. I used to like that actually, yes. having a day off in the mid in the middle of the week
0: when the rest of the world was yeah, off the, working, that's and you had freedom. It, yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> but still, you still you you had to carry on as as normal at the weekend as well. You know, still went out with my friends and and so on. Not going to go into that. <laughs> <laughs> that can stay quiet. Yes. <laughs> so it
0: sounds very much like when you were involved in, in radio and television, you had to be a jack-of-all-trades. Yeah, you, be you able were to definitely a jack-of-all-trades, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I did... Uh, on a Sunday, you used to do, the, the as I said, the children's programme. Um, I, I used to do a, a classical programme. I used to do a country western. Um, I produced my very first documentary feature, which was a, a programme called Musical Rock, which is all about local musicians, and and songwriters and things at like the song festival. I've always been very interested in that, mainly because I can remember all that growing up. Because I used to go to the rehearsals where my dad was directing the song festivals, oh, you know. Right. And I have very early recollections of, of of the song festivals in St Michael's Cave and in in the Queen's Cinema. Um, but yeah, you did you did everything, you know. Um, I can remember. Being um, the guinea pig, at was was then known as the uh, BBC A production course, and I arrived there not really knowing what to expect in in London at um, Broadcasting House, and I thought, what am I doing here? The the BBC um, Education officer from Wales, the BBC Radio One um, news editor. Oh my goodness, what am I doing here? And when you start talking. Inevitably, it happens in many areas in Gibraltar because you are a jack of all trades. You probably have a lot more experience than they have,
0: mm.
1: in, in a round roundabout way, you know. And certainly in those days, I could video edit, uh, uh, tape edit, very very fast. And I ended up editing most of their final pieces because. Somebody else did it for them always, and I had finished mine because I—that was it. Yes, because she so had I, to do it. So I helped. I helped everybody else, and of course, these were the days with a, a china graph pencil, That's a razor right. blade, That's right. and That's some right. and some yes. tape, and the ewer, which used to weigh a ton and a half. Oh, I've carried a ewer myself. <laughs> I know what they feel like. <laughs>
0: But I have to say, having been trained on quarter-inch tape like that, it trains your ear into oh, edit absolutely. in a way that looking and at a wave on a
1: computer screen doesn't. No, no, absolutely. And it also trains you to to, to keep to to what you're doing because you couldn't record more than 15 minutes on the yes, So You'd run out of tape. You'd run out of tape and that was it. And, and if you didn't do the interview in those 15 minutes, you'd had it. <laughs> really. You had to be so much more disciplined. Oh, it's absolutely. It's the same with film cameras absolutely. and digital cameras. But it's also disciplined in the sense that, you know, you, today there is so much precision because the computers just do it for you. Mm-hmm. But back then you had to do it yourself. Yes, yes. Um, you know, like the pips at, at, at the top of the hour. And you had to make sure that you got it right, and you had to speak over the lily bolero just before the, the, the hour. Yeah. You had to do that yourself. Today, it's all practically done for yeah, you. Yeah, really. it's computerised an awful yeah. lot of it, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so after
0: you had your initial stint at
1: GBC, you
0: then uh, you took a step out.
1: Well, I, um, I, uh, I, by the time I, I left GBC, I had been with GBC over just over 16 years, and I was head of community affairs on, on Radio Travolta. I was always very interested in um, in news and in people, and I think you have to be interested in people. Otherwise, what are you doing the job for, you know? Um, and telling their story, really. Uh, but I'd always been interested in, in theatre, and I'd done some theatre here before before leaving for UK, and I'd never got the opportunity to go and study, really. So I decided I wanted to do stage management, which is exactly what I'd, I'd been doing locally, you know. And again, the same thing happened, I, you know. I, I went to do stage management of the Guildhall School of Music and Drama and I wasn't doing anything very different to what I was taught there, really, because that's how it is. Um, I had a great time because I was able to do musicals, I was able to do serious drama, I was able to do a whole variety of, of, of things and work in different sectors within the, the, the industry, so to speak, you know. I, I got the chance as well to do a film, a television series where I was uh, the first runner. Um, and that, um, that was quite, uh, quite inspiring, actually, because it's a lot of work to do that sort of thing. And you, I, I got the chance to work with pe- people like um, Prunel Scales, so that was, that was quite interesting to do it for, for a while. Mike, Mike uh, Maloney as well, who was very, very, in fact, you see him in practically a, a lot of the, the series uh, on, on television, even to this day. Um, but then I also got to do a lot of stage work, you know, which was, which was great. And I premiered um, as a stage manager a musical called Jacques Brel is alive and well and living in Paris in the Canal Theatre. And I worked with people who who had just come off the West End and had been in play in shows like Phantom of the Opera and you know a number of those uh, plays, uh, musicals around at at the time. So it was great. I had I had a great time, and then I came back. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like an amazing opportunity just to work with such yeah, a diverse well, range was, of people. It was actually it was. It's it's a very you know people think it's glamorous, but it's not really glamorous, you know. Um, most of the people that were in that show with me were there because they couldn't find a job elsewhere, really. And they had to make ends meet. And it was all profit sharing back then. Um, you, it, it, we were fortunate because we actually made money right. out out of it and we got something back. But um, the vast majority of people who were meet with me on that stage management course are no longer stage managers. They're doing something else, like myself.
0: Yes, you know. Indeed.
1: I mean, it's a very demanding job, anyway. You know, it's like it's like babysitting a director, really. Yeah. And I, I guess. Um, I mean, I came back not not to to stay in Jib, I came back because I, I had a problem with my back, and I thought I'd go back after a while. In fact, I was called back to do um, Jacques Brel again, but it, di- it didn't happen. I, I stayed on, and. Uh, I, I, you know, I went into GBC, I was fortunate to get something on radio, um, just because it happened, not because I was looking for it. Uh, and then I just stayed on, really, and I, I was fortunate to to do all the election programs for the 1996 elections. Um, I did the Island Games as well in 1995, just before that. Um, and I did a number of programs on television. Uh, the Governor's Program, I did We Served. Uh, all with Patrick Rousseau. Um I always worked with him as as a producer, and yeah, just it's just it's just life, really. You know, you just get these opportunities, and you don't really want to lose them.
0: No, indeed. So you you were reunited with GBC, but uh, but not indefinitely. Although you, you still have your program uh, center stage, yeah. which of course has been on you know, for just
1: over twenty years now. Tw- I think it's twenty two years now. Uh, uh, yeah. I've always had an interest in musicals. I, I love musicals. I, I guess I, I owe that to my parents, really. Um, I just I love Rogers and Hammerstein and Lerner and Lowe and Cole Porter and you know Irving Berlin, all all all, all that. Um, I, I'm I, yeah, I do like modern day musicals, but really the old stuff is the stuff that's going to survive into the future. Always does, you know.
0: Absolutely. So uh, you took you took a leap though, didn't you? From, I did,
1: yeah. From broadcasting to print. Uh, yeah, I did. I um, I I uh, I was cons I was working with GBC not full time. I was working as um, as a freelancer really, um, uh, for a long time, and I eventually, because of the elections, uh, went into the newsroom as well, and 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 worked in the newsroom with Stephen Nish and uh, and the whole team there. And then Dominic Searle came knocking at my door and asked me if I would join the Chronicle as a features editor. And I thought about it, and I thought, well, yeah, why not? And I didn't know if I could write. He took a gamble as well. I took a gamble. Uh, But I got on very well with Dominic, and um, I think, you know, I'm very fortunate because all my editors, all my former editors, are all friends of mine. So I guess that says something about them and about me. Um, And within a week of being in the Chronicle, I already had my first front-page story, you know. But on many occasions, Dominic will call me in and say, "You're still writing for radio, you know. You've got to stop doing this. You're still writing for radio." It's a very different skill, isn't it? (laughs) Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I like to view what I do in. As in as, as as an article, if you like, um, I I never really stopped being a broadcaster, and and even now I I don't just say I'm a journalist; I'm a broadcast journalist. Um, and radio was was a, I think most people you you yourself would say there's something about radio which is very very special.
0: Absolutely,
1: and certainly I I think I got. I was very fortunate to have worked with people like um, Peter Knessa, um George Dubolay, Christine Clifton-Seiler and Richard Cartwright. We were the team at Radio Gibraltar then. And we really were a family, you know? Um, and we're still very good friends today, even even today. And radio has got that. I don't know, there's something about it. I, I can't really pinpoint it, you know? But as I was saying... I, use, I get my articles and how, what do I do? Well what I do is what I used to do on radio. I, I kind of build a documentary come feature. That's really what I do. and I have my pieces that just come together. and I, that, that's what I enjoy doing. You know, the, I've always worked alone because even it's, it's different in, in, in newsprint. On radio, you're working as a team, but really, when you're doing the show, it's you on your own, and and it's your personality that 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 goes through. Whereas in print, although you're still working as a team, the element of teamwork is less so. It's it's a different kind of of work, you know, and you're yeah. very much on 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 your own, writing your own stuff. It's your own thoughts and and, and the way you put it across.
0: Yeah, and it's you. Searching out the stories, Absolutely. finding finding yeah. things to write
1: about. Yeah, well, I don't think in Gibraltar that is a problem.
0: I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> I don't
1: think that's ever been a problem. Um, there's always there's always been some. Yeah, I, I, I'm I'm a firm believer that wherever you look, any cubbyhole, any you know in the corner, any corner, uh, behind wherever you want, you will find a story. There's always a story because, essentially, you are telling stories about people. Whether it's people from today or people from the past, you're still telling stories about people. So you're always going to have something to say because there's many people. And what I found through my um, Saturday columns, Alice's Table is it sometimes i i guess i knew this but maybe it's been reinforced in a sense um you you think you know a person but you don't really you know when you start to talk to a person you think wow you did that you were involved with that oh i didn't know you were there and 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 i lo- i love you know finding out all those they're not quite secrets but you know things that were there to be discovered really
0: Yes, you just needed to ask the question. You know, yeah,
1: yeah, um, and and also trying to convince people to to uh, to do interviews. I mean, I, it's taken you a while to convince me <laughs> because I don't like to be on this side of of the microphone. Um, so I understand when people say no to me, uh, but actually, no one says no to me. And I, 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 no one that I've actually asked for Alice's table has said no to me. I've convinced practically everybody and I haven't really needed to do a lot of convincing I have to be honest the only one perhaps that I needed a little bit of convincing was my dear old friend Elsie Ocello who for years I have been wanting to tell her story because she was a a member she was a lead voice in um, Los Romanceros which was a a group that was very very popular in the mid-50s to mid-60s and she never wanted to do an interview until I got her one day and I said, you've got to tell me a story. Elsie, you've... I've known her all my life because she was a friend of my mum's. Um, and she said yes. And, you know, that—that that was that's great. I love those stories because I've finally achieved something that I've always wanted. You know, you say, tick tick, 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 tick it off, you know, one, yeah. one of your your, your your lists, on, it, on your list. But... Well
0: it's a fascinating read Alice's Table I mean I I go straight for that on a Saturday in the Chronicle just to see uh, quite often there are people that I don't know personally but I know their faces because of Gibraltar being the place it is or there's a connection with somebody and then to unearth this amazing story Mm. behind them or of something they've experienced or somebody within their family has Mm. experienced
1: we're all connected absolutely we're all we're all connected locally and and I think I've been able to, look, take somebody like, for example, Patrick Vela, who I speak to quite a lot, I've known all my life, and suddenly one day, I mean, he he and I have something in common. We love musicals, so when we talk, we talk about theatre. And essentially, we talk about musicals. And he, in fact, introduced me to a number of people, like Ethel Merman and a uh, number of names from, from show business, from, from the musicals, um, that I subsequently discovered myself, you know? So I'm very grateful to him that he kind of opened up a new horizon for me, really. But talking to him one day, he says, oh, because I've got pictures of Doris Day. And I said, Doris Day, Patrick? What do you mean, Doris Day? And <laughs> he'd he actually met Doris Day, and he met quite a lot of stars, like Anna Neagle. Um, and it was fascinating, because he had an interest in that. And I didn't know he worked at the airport terminal, you know, many years ago. As
0: the stars were coming and going. Uh, yeah,
1: you know, so it was, it's fascinating when you uncover something like that, you know. I loved doing Oswin Falquero the other day um, because I always wanted to tell the story of Edison Lighthouse uh, and the, the local group that just missed out on that opportunity of becoming Edison Lighthouse. Uh, I think those are important they can't be lo- those stories can't be lost you know you know and, and it's it's sad if they're lost um I've recently done um again it's taken me a while to do uh an interview with Johnny Hammond talking about the Hammond studio and his father and how the Hammond studio came about and who recorded in there and so on you know it's it's all it- can, sometimes it's all a bit sketchy but You talk to people and you you try to... You you, you come up with a story, you know? It it is there at the back of people's memories. It is is there. It's not easy sometimes, especially when when people are older. You've got to take them one way and then take them another and then eventually come back to the middle and meet them, you know? And you do get the story eventually. I just love those stories. I I wanted to tell the story of Lenny Misod. Um, Why, you may ask? Because my dad was a good friend of hers. I wake up to her paintings every day at home, and one particular painting was one of my favorites, and I have very, very fond memories of being in her studio as a child and going to art lessons with her. And then later on, I remember going to the art center, and she actually posed one day for us, and I've got a sketch of her that I did. I'm a very bad drawer, but anyway, I did it. Mean, I can't paint but for my life, but um, I've got it, you know? and. Huge! She was such an amazing persona. She was a woman bigger than life, you know, so large and so full of life and vibrant. And I wanted to bring that to my column because I thought it was very important that people don't forget that, you know. And I remembered um, Willa Vasquez, Basheva Peralta, and Jane Langdon the Selfati sisters, of course, they were Selfati before they, they all married, that they also went, they were older than me, but they went to her studio, and I wanted to recreate her studio. I wanted to recreate that element of my past, you know, and through Tony Lombard, who he allowed us to go into the house where Leni Missoult lived with her sister Carlotta, and I recorded an interview with the three of them there. And we, we were, it was wonderful, because we could all remember, you know, when you walked in and where the, the paints were and where all the paintings were and what hanged there and inside all the, the stuff that she'd brought from Madrid. and, and it's Great. That's what I want to do. I want to recreate a moment in our history.
0: Reading that particular column... You could, as a reader who didn't know Lenny Mithsoud and mm. I don't know the, the subjects of your, your article, mm. I got the magic. I got the sense of real enjoyment and connection with a very important time in all of your lives. It came across through the writing. Mm. And that's, that's something very magic that you,
1: you were able to convey yeah, within you. your words. Thank you. Um, it was magical, actually. It was great. You know, we, we had fun doing that. We really did. And, and, I, and I think we all remembered things that we had forgotten for a very, very long time. And I guess, in a way, that's what, I, what I, I want to say in my columns. Things that have been forgotten for a very long time, that if they're not written down, they are going to be lost forever. Mm. And there are many local personalities from the past... There are many instances, you know. Um, I did the John Lennon wedding, for example. Uh, That was great. Uh, I I remembered it. I'd done it before in a series that I used to do on on television called uh, I Was There, where I really... So, effectively, throughout my life, I've been doing the same thing, (laughs) telling stories, really. And I was there, just basically got different moments in our history. And we took somebody who was there, you know, and the, that person told told the story, and we covered a lot of uh, different things back then. And that was special too, you know. But it's not just about locals, it's also about people who come to Gibraltar and stay in, in Gibraltar, or who just momentarily pass by Gibraltar as well. Because I think that's important, because we have to open... Ourselves to to the outside world, um, I I interviewed um, a woman pianist who made her fame through the YouTube, and that was very interesting. Yes, you know that that was fascinating. I mean, the guy that came, uh, the guy who came and played the sax, mm-hmm. and he, you know he was fascinating, and um, I I wanted to do him in particular because. I, he came from El Sistema, which was really about growing up with music in in very in very poor areas, and how the Simón um, Bolívar Orchestra had come to light. Yes. You know, and, and I had an in interest in that, yeah, getting yes. the opportunity. Yes, I remember you know? that one. Yes. and and I was always fascinated by that because I wanted to know what what did it, and I and Gibraltar needs to know about that you know? because. I think music is very important in people's lives anyway. Um, for me, it is. It's uh, it's probably top of my list, really. You're
0: listening to Gibraltar Stories, and in this Inspiring Gibraltar Women episode, Alice Mascarenius has been sharing memories from her life and career to date. The first 12 months of Alice's weekly column in the Gibraltar Chronicle has been turned into a book, which is a fascinating insight into Gibraltar society, with stories from history as well as very personal stories as well. Alice told me how the idea for the book came about from her editor, Brian Reyes, and how the funds raised from its sale are going to help the next generation of journalists.
1: Brian wanted to... um, Well, he had the idea... Of using the money made from that book to go towards like um, uh, an internship for, for during the summer for a young journalist, you know. And I thought, wow, what a great idea! Yeah, let's do it, you know. Um, and that's what exactly what we did. We got the first year of all the articles and put them into a book. And I, I think. I, I, when when we first got together, and he said he it he, it took him a while to convince me to come back after I'd left the Chronicle. Um, well, it didn't take him that long, actually. Come to think of it, because I left in June, the end of June, and I came back in September. Um, but he wanted to he wanted me to write a column, and I liked the idea. I think as a journalist, the fact that you're doing a column in in your senior years. Well, not senior, I'm not senior, but anyway, you know, in your later years. Um, It had a ring to it. It had a twist to it. I loved it. I loved that idea. And I said to him instantly, I said, I'm not writing opinion. I don't want to, I don't, I don't think I have, of course I have an opinion. But no, I don't want to write opinion. I want to write about people. I want to write about the people in this community who make up and enrich this community on a daily basis. And not just now, but from yesterday as well. You know, like for example, and I, I keep remembering who I've done. Um, Guy Palmer's father. No one's ever written about this man who was such a talented musician. You know, and, we, and I managed to do that. I got the opportunity uh, to to do that, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do because I had no idea what how how to go about it. I have, I'd always known that somehow my 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 journalistic career had driven me to this, for for whatever reason, you know, and. We sat down for lunch one day and he said, what are we going to call it? I said, I don't know. This was about mid-August and I still hadn't even thought of what I was going to do. <laughs> and I said, I don't know, I thought of a few things that I'm not really... And then suddenly he came up with Alice's Table. And, and he, we kind of parked it a little bit. And then I said, you know, I, I like that. I like the idea of Alice's Table. So we thought, OK, let's go with it. And that same afternoon I went home and I wrote my first article in The Space of an Hour. Thank you very much, sir. and that was it. The rest is history as 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 they say, but I think Brian was so very keen and he i and I have to give him full credit for this because he's pushed me to no end, even he didn't realize the importance of those. Articles, because we didn't know where it was going to go in history, and when he suddenly realized that there was a volume of of work on of historical of a historical nature, he came up with the idea of the book because it's one in one book and you're able to to look at history in the book, you know it's not like going to the Chronicle and having to pick up Chronicle from last week or three weeks ago or four or four months ago. Um, and, I, and I think it worked, it worked very well. Um, there, re- there is one extra co- um, article in the book that has never gone out in, in the Chronicle because we wanted to give it a little bit of a, a special thing, you know, we had a few ideas, and in the end we went with this one because John Gallero sadly passed away three weeks after I interviewed him, and I'm grateful to his family because they allowed me to do that for the book exclusively, you know, and it was a great article. It, I, I, it, he was a great character, so I hope that he came through in that in, in that uh, that article. So yeah, that's that's what what I've been doing: gathering gathering information, and I'm still doing it. I'm now I'm oh, I think it's number seventy-two, going on to seventy-three. It's quite daunting, really, when you think about it. <laughs> it's a huge body of work. <laughs> it's quite daunting, and and it is, you know. I mean. You have to be committed. You have to be committed. Um, and I... I am able to commit. Not everybody can. It's clearly uh, a passion, though, Alice. It's... Well, I, in those 22 years of centre stage, I've always delivered on a weekly basis. So that's a long time. So, I I know. I mean, Brian keeps saying, "If you want a break," I said, "No, I don't want a break." You have. If I'm committed, I'm committed, and that is something I feel very strongly about, really.
0: The consistency.
1: Yeah, consistency. I think it's important, you know, and and also because I know that there are people who enjoy it and people who who do go into the chronic, buy the Chronicle on a Saturday to to, to look at that article and and who do listen to the radio to to listen to. Um, t- t- the sounds of yesterday most, mostly um, but I do play a lot of modern day musicals as well but that's also a fact and I, I've told R- Richard Cartwright who also does a, a, the oldies programme um, it's not that we're the best by, by no means but it's just that we provide an alternative and I think that's very important
0: without a doubt can I take you off on a tangent? Yeah, go on. Um, and that's that uh, within the last few months, you've been very much involved in um, curating an amazing exhibition at the John McIntosh Hall um, dedicated to the work of a good friend of yours.
1: Yeah, Elio Groove. Yeah, that was um, oh, a long time back. Uh, the cultural services went to, to see Elio because he wanted to donate all his paintings to the Gibraltar collection. And I've known Elio quite a few years um, through Cecil Gomez. Uh, really, I'm very grateful to Cecil having introduced me to Elio and f- for that because I was very involved in theater. And I was fortunate enough to have co-directed with Cecil La Lola se va pa- pa in its third edition. That, for me, was probably... I, I still consider it one of the highlights of my life because these people were gods to me, you know, and it, today, um, the, the respect you had for older people some time ago is it not the same as, as today. Um, and I, always, I was a member of Group 70, so for me that was, wow, you know, I'm a member of, of Group 70 and I have very strong relationships coming out of, of, of that. Um, like radio, because of the closeness that you, you live under, um, theatre is a little bit like that. That theatre family is um, is very powerful, really. And I got to know Elio very well. Uh, I would go over to see him quite regularly. When I w- visited the UK, I always turned up. He used to call me my little whirlwind, because I would turn up and, and call him and say, I'm here. And he goes, what do you mean? You're here. I've just just arrived. I'll be there tomorrow morning. And we used to go to exhibitions, and we used to go to the theater together. And during the time that I was in England, when I was at the Guildhall, he came to see every single show I was in. And he came to see Jacques Brel at least twice. He was very proud of that, actually. So... When Seamus said that he was going to do this, he asked me if I would join the team because I knew him and because I knew a little bit of the work. Funnily enough, I didn't know enough about his paintings. I knew he painted, like most people in Gibraltar probably did, but not to that extent. So I said I would would help him out, and I ended up looking at doing a catalogue of the work, but then that became a book because really when we when we started to to view what we had you just couldn't ignore the, the theatre side you couldn't ignore the design side you couldn't ignore a number of things you know like he wrote la plegaria toda Virgencita de europa uh, we, uh, and he was a me- one of the original members of los trovadores so my goodness what a story to tell you know mm-hmm. and I got to do it. I got to do it. And, and really, I did it from a personal point of view. You know, um, I write as a journalist. I don't I'm not an author. I write as a journalist. And Eli was very close to, to my heart. So in a sense, I knew the people around him. I knew the people who knew him. And I was able to kind of bring all that together through interviews as well. Because the book has got a number of interviews in different facets of, 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 of his life. Um, and the people who knew him, like, for example, the late Mario Finlayson, who was with him in the Calpe Institute, Um, Cecil Gomez, obviously, Uh, Humber Hernandez, Mari Carmen Azopardi, all great friends of his, you know? And they each gave me a little bit of Elio in a very different kind of way. And then it was the volume of of work. Um, The paintings were amazing. I mean, some of his, his stuff, when you think at the time he painted them, he was way ahead of his time, and he was always so full of life, you know. And I wanted the book to really portray that his zest for life. He was a generous man. He was generous with his knowledge. He he was a great friend. He I'll give you an example. He knew I liked Piero della Francesca, for example. He would take me to the National Gallery to see the painting that I liked, you know, and he would know everything about the painting. That's the sort of person he, he, he was. And we shared a lot of good moments in, in the theatre. He always had a lot of fun, and it, so there's and, and one, there's it was bit, fun.
0: So there's, there's one bit in the book, actually, that you mentioned that you'd gone over to London, you hadn't told... Yeah. earlier that you were going and you'd gone straight to the
1: theater. and he was there. yeah, I, I was we were walking to the theater in fact, with my cousin Samantha. Uh, we'd both met. you'd just come down from university and, I, and we met and went straight to the theater. It was the opening night of the producers, and um, the guy who was playing the lead well, he just walked off basically, and Nathan Lane was brought in from America to play the lead which he had played in America. In, in the producers, and we're walking up towards um, the Shaftesbury, and Samantha says to me, That sounds like Elio. I said, No, it can't be Elio. It can't be, can't be. And then she goes, Yes, yeah, sounds like Alan. No, no, it can't be, can't be. We would turn around the corner, and there were Alan and Elio, and they were going to see the same show as us. Of course, I should have known better because. I knew he was going to go and see that, you know, especially with Nathan Lane in it, and we go, <laughs> we were in the dress circle, and we were literally three rows above him and if we enjoyed it, we enjoyed it even more because he just burst into laughter every two seconds, <laughs> and it was just so funny, yeah, yeah, and then there was the 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 occasion when he went to see a play with Maggie Smith, and she'd won an Oscar she'd just won an oscar and um Cecil and he were 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 in the stalls and at the end of it nobody applauded or brought brought her back and he just got up and started to applaud and Cecil tells me the story he started to applaud and say it's inless inglese they don't know what they're doing they don't know what they have <laughs> you know, <yeah>. that was
0: <laughs> that was it it was whipping up the crowd <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: yeah it just couldn't believe that they hadn't given her a standing ovation you know because of she had just literally, that week, won the Oscar.
0: Gosh. You've achieved such a lot in your life. You've done so many amazing, diverse things, um, and you're very much a role model to lots of people coming Thank in your you. wake. Um, can I ask you, who is your role model?
1: Wow, I guess my mum was my role model. Um, Because she was always there. She was there supporting my dad in his career and supporting me in my career. Uh, and she was. Um, if, if if you got something wrong, she would tell you. You know, she. she I, a lot of people used to say that because I was an only child, I was spoiled. But I can assure you, I wasn't. <laughs> I guess she was my my first role model, and then, well, you know, I I look up to people like. Uh, great, I greatly admire Julie Andrews. Um. I greatly admire Bette Midler, and and um, all the female songwriters, uh, people like Carole King, for example, um, and and Carole um Sager. There's, there's so many of them, you know. Um, I love lyrics, I love lyrics, but you know, my role models were are not only um, women because. I people like Stephen Sondheim, who've done so much for the development of the musical, you know, before him, Rodgers and Hammerstein I and mean, Oscar Hammerstein, goodness read those lyrics. They're not just sugary like people tend to tell me. They're not, you know. And I find a lot in that, you know, and those people, their thoughts and the way they've written stuff, um, I I guess a lot of them are, are, are part of that. Role. I don't have one, you know, role model, but I guess my mum would be the first one.
0: So we've we've covered a great deal about your past and how you've got to where you are now. What does the future hold
1: for Alice? Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I don't know, really. I'm kind of still um, trying to find a structure to my retirement. Well, well, a lot of people will say to you, you haven't really retired, Alice. In fact, it's no, I haven't really. I have... I, I did step down from what I was doing before as deputy editor of the Chronicle. Um, but I, I I think I just want to enjoy life, really. Um, there's a number of things I want to do. I will carry on doing my, my columns. I think there's a lot more stories that I, I, I want to uncover. Uh, there's a lot more things that I want to do, like the Elliot Ruth, for example. Um, I, one of my first articles was about... Alfredo Perez, who was a businessman, but an artist. He was the grandfather of one of our late ministers, Juan Carlos Perez. I never knew who he was. I just found out about him because I walked through a shop one day, an antique shop one day, and saw this painting that I recognized as a painting from the Louvre. And Alfredo Perez, written at the bottom, 1953, and I thought. Who on earth is that? Is that? And I uncovered the story, and I spoke to his granddaughter, and I think I would like to make sure that that, that exhibition happens one day in the not too uh, distant future, and just essentially do that, you know, just um, remain in this community and trying to to bring to, to to bring out the good and positive points of this community we live. We live in a society these days where there can be a lot of negativity and where there's a lot of complaints about everything. And we really have very little to complain about these days. And I want to bring out the positiveness of this community from the past and from from the present into the future, really. And I think that that is important. And for me personally, I just want to carry on listening to music, carry on listening. I love music. I, I listen to music all the time. Um, I love musicals. I want to carry on going to the theatre. Maybe I might go back into the theatre and direct. I mean, that's an area we haven't really uh, covered at all, but I did a lot of of stuff with Leslie Zemitz and Cecil Huomiz in in particular. A lot of great shows, um, a lot of good um, plays like Bouncers, Italian Straw Hats, Amadeus, Fiddler on the Roof... So, yeah, maybe go back into the theatre and do some more directing. Um, and read. I think that is important. You know, I I don't read as much as I would like to uh, because I think we're all consumed by everything else. I'm not really a social media person, but like everybody, I like TV. I grew up with TV, so I, yeah, I watch Nextflix and, and what have you. Um, and just generally write just carry on writing and finally write a book on my dad.
0: Alice thank you so much for agreeing to speak to me for Gibraltar's stories you alluded to the fact that I'd been asking to speak to you for quite a while and I'm thrilled that you finally agreed to in the end. We spent a very enjoyable hour or so chatting over a drink to record this interview, but believe me, it could have been so much longer than it was. Alice has led such an interesting life and shared the stories of so many fascinating people. She is a true inspiration to me. If you'd like to get hold of one of Alice's books, you can do so here in Gibraltar. I'll include the details for those in the show notes for this episode. Thank you very much for taking an interest in Gibraltar Stories. If you enjoyed listening to this, please share it with your friends and consider reviewing Gibraltar Stories on your favourite podcast app. I'll be back again next week with more inspiring Gibraltar women. Gibraltar Stories is presented, produced and edited by me, Lindsay Weston. Thanks very much for listening and until next time, goodbye for now.